Welcome to Aspen Insight from the Aspen Institute. I'm Ben Berliner. Here on the show, we look at the work of the Aspen Institute and meet some of the people who lead it. One of these leaders is Sylvia Earle. She's co-chair of the Aspen High Seas Initiative, a program that brings the ocean community and world leaders together to sustainably manage and protect the high seas. In 1979, Dr. Earl walked on the ocean floor, 1,250 feet deep and untethered. No one had ever walked that far down before. And that's not her only first. She was the first woman chief scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. She's a scientist and a scholar who's written several books, but she's also an inventor. She built the deep rover working with engineers, It's a cutting-edge submersible capable of reaching the depths of the ocean floor. But most importantly, Sylvia Earle makes waves. She speaks for the ocean as a passionate advocate, and at 83, she's more active than ever. Time Magazine's first hero for the planet and National Geographic's explorer-in-residence, she frequently discusses the profound threats to the ocean and all the life that depends on it. Climate change, overfishing, pollution, and more. Dr. Earle's message is urgent, but also filled with hope. On today's show, I speak with her about her life charting the deep seas and how we can make sure the ocean survives. Here's my conversation with her. Going back to your earliest childhood memories, do you remember the first time you saw the ocean? Of course. And do you? (laughs) Doesn't everyone? It's one of those moments that sticks with a person, unless they're really young, perhaps, might not make the impression. But I was about three when the family took a, a vacation on the Jersey Shore. And I remember just first that aroma of the sea that was different from from what I knew from living inland on a little farm. And then then we could hear this this sound. It was the sound of waves breaking on the beach. And finally, I could see the ocean as we came up over the dunes. And there it was, this amazing mass of water. But what really got my attention was when I got knocked over by a wave. And I, I for a moment couldn't breathe. It was a new sensation and got rolled around a little bit, but my toes touched the bottom. My head came out of the water and I could breathe and I realized that was was really fun. The ocean is in itself just as water, an exhilarating place to be as surfers and swimmers and divers know just the sensation of of that being buoyant, being weightless in the sea. When you were growing up, what books did you read? I guess I'm thinking, were they science textbooks, you know, National Geographic, or were any of them storybooks or adventures? Oh, sure. I was a little kid before television, before computers, before cell phones and all that. So books were the counterpart. And I love books. And yes, 
we subscribed to the National Geographic, and I devoured it when it came through. Always something there that I found fascinating, especially the articles about animals and plants and exploring. I loved the the stories about William Beebe, and I read his book when I was 12. It was when we moved to Florida. I used to haunt the library in Dunedin, Florida, sit on the floor and read the books and all the animal books, all the, I don't know, adventures. And who is William Beebe and why did he inspire you? William Beebe was a zoologist. He was at the New York Zoological Society. He and the engineer, Otis Barton, got their heads together and built a little submarine back in the late 20s and early 30s and used it in the waters off Bermuda to go as, they were the first actually to go as much as half a mile beneath the surface. And the book that I found enchanting and still love reading it, it's called Half Mile Down, where B.B. and Barton took turns looking out a little tiny porthole to see life as they descended on uh, into the clear waters around around Bermuda. And he saw these most incredible things, including creatures that make their own living light bioluminescence. It's one of the first descriptions of something that is now coming into sharp focus is the twilight zone, where the greatest animal migrations on the planet take place and the greatest mass of, of animal life occurs. And that's between 100 and 1,000 meters in the sea all over the planet. There's some areas that are more richly populated than others, but it's a, it's a widespread phenomenon where animals that live in the dark by day come up at night. It's still dark, <laughs> but they are creatures of the dark. In fact, most of life on Earth lives in darkness all the time. That would be in the deep sea, below a 1,000 meters. So when you yourself made the plunge and set the record by walking the ocean floor at 1,250 feet, what did you see? Well, it was reminiscent of what B.B. described, like a galaxy of, of life. Uh, and not just walking on the ocean floor, but that was only a at 400 meters, I had a chance to go to 1,000 meters, about the same depth that B.B. and Barton went, but it was in a clear sphere, one that I had a hand in developing called the Deep Rover. A one-person system, that was the first one, but then I actually started the company with an engineer colleague, and we built submarines and underwater robots and things. Although I'm a scientist, not an engineer, it really helps to work with engineers and and have an interaction that, that this is what a scientist needs. Uh, this is what we need to be able to do. How do you see the future for women and girls in this field and in STEM education? And how have attitudes changed? Attitudes have changed quite a lot in in the time that I've been on the planet, my mother was born in 1902. So even when she was of a legal age to vote, she could not. 
and it has changed. I mean, when she finally could vote, when she came of age, um, well, not when she came of age, when women were allowed to vote, she never missed an election. She took voting very seriously. I suppose being denied the vote was a powerful incentive to never miss out when she had a chance. And I was told when I was a little girl that I I might wish to be a doctor, but realistically I should plan to be a nurse. Or if I wanted to do something in education, being a teacher was certainly within my reach, but being a, a superintendent, not a chance. A secretary, sure. A CEO, never. Um, and to do something really adventuresome, like fly airplanes, well, you could do so as a stewardess, but not not at the helm. So things have changed a lot. Uh, there are women flying airplanes, uh, captains of ships, women astronauts. But when I began diving, women were rare and discouraged. It was thought to be a macho form of activity. But as a scientist, I wasn't worried about it being uh, a matter of of strength uh, because diving can be as relaxing and as easy as you want it to be, or it can be as vigorous and <laughs> and exhausting as you want it to be. But the access to the sea required learning the techniques of diving and developing submarines and robots and all the rest. So it's it's the rationale for why I want to go that has driven me to solve the problems and work with engineers to to come up with solutions. So are there any new developments in ocean technology that excite you? Yes. Um, there's so many things that have happened since the time of BB, uh, or since I began diving in the 1950s. It just gets better, but what's puzzling is that for a while, access to the skies above and to the depths below were running on a roughly parallel course. But we've seen from the early days of aviation to not only going to the moon, but sending our presence vicariously to Mars, to Jupiter, and even beyond our own solar system. So in the ocean, we're way behind. We've neglected the ocean. We've invested in technology to go into space, and it's paid off handsomely. We've neglected the ocean, and it's it's really costing us dearly. By dearly, she's talking about the rapid destruction of the world's coral reefs, a 70% decline in seabird population since 1950, 8 million metric tons of plastic thrown in the ocean by us every year. So I asked her about the damage that's been done in recent generations. Do you still think that the best place to dive is anywhere 50 years ago? <laughs> well, I say almost anywhere. <laughs> there are places 50 years ago that were already in pretty grim condition, but generally speaking, there has been um, overwhelming decline of the ocean with half the coral reefs gone, seagrass beds, mangroves, similarly even plankton, phytoplankton that we rely on for most of the oxygen in the air that we breathe. Um, and also the powerhouse to capture carbon and provide food for life in the sea and hold the planet steady 
we talk about carbon capturing mechanisms that might be artificially constructed, take CO2 out of the atmosphere. Well, that's what plants do naturally, whether it's on the land or in the sea. But the ocean does the heavy lifting. It's, the, you know, the, the turnover of the small creatures in the sea. They capture carbon, photosynthesize, and as a byproduct, release oxygen and generate food that becomes captured by all the little things in the ocean that go right up the food chain. So carbon capture on the land we think of in terms of trees, but in the sea it's fish, it's whales, it's shrimp, all the things that we take out of the sea, reducing the capacity of the ocean to be that natural carbon capture mechanism. So we're contributing to the problems when we strip mine the ocean or clear-cut the forests of life. That's disrupting the ability of the planet to capture carbon and hold the planet steady, even in the face of of um, the release of excess carbon dioxide. We were doing a pretty good job of disrupting things before fossil fuels entered the equation. I feel like all too often, the health of the ocean is left out of the climate change conversation. How do you see that? The Paris meetings represented the first time that the ocean did get on the balance sheet, but even so, it was almost a footnote. But things have changed. And and why? Because it's just the truth. The ocean drives climate, drives and shapes weather, drives the carbon cycle, drives the oxygen cycle, drives the water cycle. If you want to talk any of the things that, that govern the way the planet works, you have to talk ocean. So the next climate conference will take place in Chile coming up during probably push into 2021, um, either late 2020, but anyway, it'll be in Chile. It's already being characterized as the Blue Climate Conference. They're getting around to accounting for the role of the ocean. And people ask me, so what is climate doing to the ocean? And I say, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. It's what is the ocean doing to climate? And when you change the character of the ocean, you change everything. And how else can our listeners and people like me think differently about protecting the ocean? Okay, number one, take advantage of the knowledge that's there. Go watch Blue Planet 2. Uh, read. I've got it on my Netflix queue. Yeah, good. <laughs> and 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 just be so excited that you're alive when we have a chance as never before because we know what we know, but also with a sense of urgency because as never again, there's an opportunity to take action that in ignorance we could not take when I was a child. We thought the ocean was so big, so vast, we could not harm the ocean. We thought the sky was big enough that we could release anything we wanted to in the sky. We just, quotes, go away. Well, there is no away. Now we know. We didn't know it before, but now that we do, we have no excuse for not behaving ourselves in a more respectful way toward the natural world that, that keeps us alive. That's Sylvia Earle 
co-chair of the Aspen High Seas Initiative. Sharing that knowledge is a primary function of the initiative. Executive Director Michael Conathan looks to oversight, collaboration, and stewardship as key. He explains to me what the high seas are and what the initiative is doing to protect them. But before we hear from Michael, Aspen Insight has its own piece of knowledge for you. Our sister podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, is available on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. It's a weekly show that features expertise from innovators, makers, and creators who've presented on the Aspen Institute stages. Speakers include journalist Jane Mayer, linguistics professor John McCorder, rock climber Tommy Caldwell, and many more. Find Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to your podcasts. Michael Conathan, Executive Director of the High Seas Initiative. Thank you so much for coming in today. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. I want to start off by asking you, uh, what makes the high seas different from the rest of the ocean? Well, fundamentally, the ocean is the ocean. Uh, We draw arbitrary boundaries in the ocean as humans because we like to divide things up. It's what we do. But from a, of course, from a biological and a scientific standpoint, there's there's no difference. There's no magical barrier that occurs where one country's territory turns into the high seas. But for purposes of, of political delineation, the high seas is the area of the ocean that is beyond any one country's jurisdiction. Uh, so under the UN Convention on Law of the Sea, which manages uh, how the world treats the ocean effectively, um, the uh, every every country has jurisdiction and sovereignty to, to varying degrees, depending on how far you are from shore, but has jurisdiction over the area out to 200 nautical miles from shore. That's called its exclusive economic zone, or EEZ in the, in the parlance. And beyond that is the high seas, where effectively no one country has control over any specific activities. So what is the high seas initiative doing right now that you're most excited about? Um, we've got a lot of great projects in the pipeline um, at the moment. I would say the one I'm most excited about is we are in the process of putting together uh, an expedition that we want to do in 2020, where we're going to bring um, about 100 or so leaders from uh, the political world, from um, the spiritual world, youth leaders, artists and writers and, and key messengers. Uh, and we want to take them with along with uh, partners with uh, Lindblad Expeditions to the Antarctic on a week-long cruise uh, to um, get down to the Antarctic continent, have these leaders experience what's happening right now in Antarctica, um, see the uh, the ice melt as it's occurring, and be able to spend, you know, really in the true Aspen model, an extended period of time among their peers, thought leaders, um, to talk about specifically issues related to high seas protection, as well as protection of the Southern Ocean and the Antarctic continent. Um, Antarctica is really a model for what we need to do on the high seas. It is also, like the high seas, a global commons. And the world was able to come together um, uh, to protect the continent of Antarctica from exploitation because it was uh, a space that was still a commons that had not been claimed and colonized and taken over by any individual nation. Uh, And the world recognized that when it set that continent aside for purposes of scientific discovery and peace. Um, That's a model that we would like to replicate on some level with the high seas. The High Seas Initiative sets sail for Antarctica next year. But in the meantime, you can keep up with all their recent work and adventures by following at Aspen High Seas on Twitter. 
Well, that does it for today's show. Don't forget to subscribe to Aspen Insight wherever you listen to your podcasts. New shows drop the last week every month. And while you're at it, share your thoughts with the hashtag Aspen Insight on Twitter. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. A big thanks to my colleagues at the High Seas Initiative for helping our listeners dive into their work. I'm Ben Berliner, and thanks for listening. Thank you.